Welcome back to the Founder Lab Marketing Show. In today's episode, we have Peter Caputo, the CEO of Databox, and this is actually his second appearance on the podcast. And we go over the seven marketing strategies companies need to implement in 2024. Peter did a post on LinkedIn in December of 2023, and it performed really well, and it resonated with a lot of people. So we decided to take that post and expand it into a full podcast episode where we go into each of them and dig a little bit deeper. So I hope you enjoy this. If you have any feedback, hit me up on LinkedIn. And now enjoy the episode with Peter Caputa. All right, welcome back to the Founder Lab Marketing Show. In today's episode, I have Peter Caputa back, actually. He was, uh, we did a episode before. And Peter is the CEO at Databox, which is a B2B SaaS company. There are around 100 people. And Databox allows you to um, monitor, report, and benchmark your company's entire performance with one app. Um, marketing performance, you can connect HubSpot, many other things, your Google Analytics, and kind of see how you're doing. And today's episode, we are going to talk about a post that Peter did two weeks ago in December about seven ways you need to tweak your marketing strategy in 2024. And it did pretty well. It resonated with people, got lots of engagement, lots of comments. And I really loved all of the seven points, I would say. Mm -hmm. So um, we're going to do an episode just kind of running through the seven points, spending a little time on each, uh, recapping them and maybe going deeper on some of them, um, because I think there's a lot of good stuff in here. Thanks for joining me, Peter. Um, yeah, it's good to be back, Finn. Am I your first, second, get, like two-time guest? <laughs> Oh, really? Oh, that's an honor. I'm asking there you, are, am I? Uh, no. Oh, sorry, you're not. Justin Rowe <laughs> oh, okay. has that honor, actually. But you're the second, you, second returner. So okay, maybe yeah, that's even I'm, more I'm magical. I'm fine being you know? second to Justin. That's a good, he's great. There you go. There you go. He's amazing. Um, all right, let's go through them. So I'll just quickly mention them, and then we're going to go through them. So seven ways you need to tweak your marketing strategy in 2024. Number one, prioritize research. Number two, get collaborative. Number three, founder-led marketing. Number four, social first, SEO second. Number five, measure differently. Number six, partner. And then number seven, stop pitching prematurely. So point number one, prioritize research. Here you basically focus on talking about that you need to have data-backed ways to prove that the problem that you solve is a real problem for your audience and that the solution that you provide is actually the right and best solution to provide it. And you give two ways to do this, either through surveys or if you can't do surveys, maybe you have too small of an audience, you do qualitative research, meaning you hop on calls with prospects, with customers, and you ask them open-ended questions um, to find that out. I, I'm curious, first question, I guess, why is that the first point? Why do you feel like this and figuring out a way to data back up your problem and the solution and why it's the right problem and the right solution is the first thing you put on that list. Uh, yeah. I, the reason that prioritizing research is the first thing on the list is because I think the world is moving way too fast for companies to assume that what they sold yesterday or last year will continue to be what the market wants now, um, and the world just keeps moving faster and faster. There's more competition, you know, with the internet market is global for most companies. Um, therefore your competition is coming from everywhere. Uh, and so 
every company needs to stay a step ahead of the market so they can stay a step ahead of the competition. Um, in the past, I think uh, companies could enter an existing market and carve out a little piece of it, um, maybe by differentiating a little bit. But I, I, my perspective on the market now is that that isn't good enough and that your organization needs to be constantly learning and identifying either new problems to solve for your market or customers and new opportunities to exploit for that, you know, for that, for your market or customers. And so the only way you're going to do that is if you're constantly doing research. Um, right. The other benefit of research is that one, it engages your market um, before maybe they're ready to buy also engages them. If they don't know you, it gives you a way to proactively connect with, prospects really uh in a in a non-salesy way in a way where you're learning together um so that's another reason to read to do prioritize research the other reason is that uh and the last this is the last one is that the output of that research when publicly shared makes usually can make a really compelling case for your product or service versus say competition uh so right. by by being the by coming up with the questions that you're going to ask, gathering the data, analyzing it, it puts you in a position to be an authority and be referenced, right? So then you are the one that came up with that research. You're going to be the one associated with it and referenced when other people might uh, share it so um, or reference right. it in their conversations or their content. So it really puts you at the center of new innovations. What I thought when I first read that is that you were saying, understand your audience and your customers better than anyone else. Mm. But what I'm, what I'm also now hearing is that it's actually, which is, that's a fundamental True. truth yeah, for sure. right? yeah. about marketing and has always been, but it's not just about understanding them so that you can build a product for them and you can be in the right channels, but that you actually gathered the data to publish it as part of your marketing collateral. Is that yeah, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So um, we just interviewed um, the head of marketing at Chartmogul and on the whole episode, just on, on this, on our metrics and chill podcast. Um, and she had some really good points in there around how like that, having that data and being the publisher of that data gets you into so many conversations. And one of the, uh, one of the examples she gave was that um, it was used in a board deck. Their data was used in a board deck um, of one of their customers, right? In, in front of mm. investors, right? And so Chartmogul is now seen as the company that provided data that was relevant to that company's strategy. So you get referenced in these closed door things. Their other example she gave was a third party speaker referenced their data in a speech at a conference. <laughs> um, and so, and like there's 10 other ways that that data might get referenced and um, that data in a, in a world where like more and more companies are producing more and more content and using AI to maybe do it, that data is unique in, uh, and needs to be referenced, right? Like you can't say 50% of companies do X without saying, here's where I got my data from. Right. Um, and so right. it becomes the only, like the, it, the only referenceable 
piece of content that is original, right? The only way to actually create original content. And if we go back to the like SEO, right? And you think about that kind of content, that content's going to attract links, which is going to help it rank. Um, also, that content is literally what Google says they want in their content guidelines. They give very little guidelines to content marketers. But one of the things they say is multi-perspective content, original research, data backed. Like they literally say, provide that in your content. And so by doing original research and publishing it, you're literally satisfying what Google says. And also, you know, what we know how Google operates with, you know, your tracking links and, and, and all that. So. Last follow-up question before I want to move on to the second point. I mean, ChartMogul is, you know, a big company. I'm, I don't know how many customers they have, but probably thousands of customers. So yeah, sure I feel like yeah. a lot of people will say, well, it's easy for them to do if you have a massive customer base to draw on. So I'm curious, you know, if, if I only have 10 customers, I only have 50 customers, I only have 200 customers, um, does this not apply to me? Do I, and, and then do I send out like a Google form to them in an email and ask them to fill that out or yeah, yeah. just talk to me through maybe smaller companies and ways to do that practically. Great question. The first step is figure out what data you should be collecting. Um, uh, uh, we, we are big into benchmarks because benchmarks, I think are the best data to publish if you're in a, uh, B2B in the B2B world, right? Because companies are always looking for what's the best practice. What are other companies do? Am I, what I'm doing or how I'm performing, is it as good as what other people are doing like me? And so there's two types of benchmarks. One is performance benchmarks. That's like knowing how much traffic should a website, my website get given that I'm this company size and in this industry or whatever, or, you know, what's my, uh, how, what should be my sales close rate for this type of product and, and, um, this price point or whatever. Right. So those are performance benchmarks. The other types of benchmarks are business process benchmarks. So those are how do companies do things? How do other companies do things? And so like, how does a SaaS company market themselves? How does a SaaS company do SEO? Um, or, uh, what, are SaaS companies doing that's working from a marketing perspective, like asking those types of questions. Uh, so the first, that's the first step. And once you decide that, then it's a matter of like, then you have to decide how you're going to collect that data. Um, we have methods and a, a free product that we actually offer our partners, which you know about, which allows them to do both of those things. And we partner with organizations to do that. We have partnerships going on with about 50 companies, including other SaaS companies like uh, Jasper AI and CallRail and Active Campaign, where we are running these surveys and benchmarks reports together, uh, so that we can both jointly publish this type of stuff. So, but the first step is like, what kind of data do you want to collect, right. and that depends on I think what services you or products you sell. In the case of um, the partnership we're doing with Active Campaign, they have a lot of partners who are fractional CMOS, and so we partnered with John Jantz from Duct Tape Marketing, uh, the three of us. Because uh, John Jantz has a network of fractional CMOs that um, license his uh, IP um, to deliver their services, and so the three of us combined are able to put out, um, put together a survey and a benchmark for fractional CMOs, so they can understand, um, you know, how to how to be the best fractional CMO possible, uh, and we'll publish that right. data. And so that serves our purpose because it helps DataBox attract a partner. It helps John attract 
uh, potential new partner as well as better serve his partners uh, and active campaign to do the same. So by thinking through who do you want to target and what kind of insights do you want to deliver to them so that you can get them kind of into your marketing bubble or marketing sphere, um, you know, that's the first step. I was leading you there, by the way. I, I saw you being yeah, you hesitant with, uh, with 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 pitching it, uh, you know, because I know you guys have a benchmark <laughs> yeah, product. It, and, it's always, you know, I'm a good host. I, so. I always try to avoid pitching unqualified in an unqualified way, but you you made me do it. Uh, also, it's all free. It's like we do all this stuff for free. So it's not really, yeah. not really, there's no greed involved here. Our goal is simply to yeah. help companies, uh, help ourselves, you know, build our audience, but also help our partners do it in the same way. Yeah. So I, I think we were already bleeding into the second point here. This, the second thing you mentioned on your list is get collaborative um, yeah. and that Google wants original content with multiple perspectives backed by data. Um, and so you say, if you hired a bunch of introverts to run your marketing, you're going to have a problem. Do you have any additional kind of thoughts on this now? Um, you know, given we, we mentioned it a little bit, but any, any additional thoughts here? Um, yeah, I think I don't, I'll, I'll try not to bleed into the next ones, but um, the, on the collaborative side, I think there's a mindset shift that marketers have to have and companies have to have. Um, and I caught a little flack for the introverted comment. It probably wasn't the right way to phrase it. Um, but I think we've raised a generation of marketers in the last 15 years to go off in a room, Google a bunch of things, read a bunch of things, and do some keyword research, um, and then sit down and write something that's maybe better or more complete. I, I know we, I don't think, I know we've done this. I actually have data <laughs> where we've asked companies, uh, marketers, how do you come up with topics? And by far and away, keyword research is the number one thing. Talking to customers, listening to sales calls are way down on the list. Like, um, I think Crazy. it was like maybe 10% of the people answered that they do those two things. Uh, and so we need to, we need to shift um, for a variety of reasons. One is because the old way isn't working as well. Uh, there's can only be so many articles on, on the internet on like how, uh, the beginner's guide to SEO. Right. And like, we know none what of us, SEO? yeah, none of us are ever going to uh, outrank SEMrush and Hrefs for that keyword phrase. Uh, it's just not going to happen. Uh, and so as markets got more competitive again, um, it's just, it's, I think it's nearly impossible to rank for popular keyword phrases, unless you're already doing really well, unless you're already Ahrefs or SEMrush or, you know, HubSpot or Databox. Like we, we have great domain authority because we've published so much content and, and, and attracted so many links over time, but unless you're already great at it, it's going to be hard for you to, to go in on it. And so you have to collaborate to create truly unique content. You can't do it from browsing the internet and you need to create some new insight. Uh, and the only way to do that is by collaborating. I think there's more ways to collaborate. It's not just like running benchmarks. It's not just surveys. Uh, you can like very simply just collaborate on social. You connect with your customers, you connect with your prospects, you, you ask questions on social. It's like the literally the easiest thing to do. And the social platforms love it because they want people to ask to leave comments in places right and that kind of con the content that gets con com comments gets then shared with a larger audience through the algorithms so that's one way a podcast is another one right we're creating content together right now um very meta i guess 
Um, so there's lots mm-hmm. of different ways to collaborate, but you got to get out there and share ideas with people, ask people questions, listen, um, and do research and, 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 and create content right. collaboratively. I think one more point on this, why it's just not working anymore for, you know, an, an SEO specialist to read the internet and read five articles and then create their own version of it. It's just chat GPT. Like yeah, you can absolutely. now automate that thing. You can just, you can just feed five links in it, into this and say, write right. me a, another version of this topic based on these five blog posts right. that I fed to you. And it's just, it's already, it already was commodity. Now it's, yeah yeah we've gone from like yeah hiring somebody and paying them a few hundred bucks to um yeah a couple seconds yeah paying somebody 50 bucks to sit there with chat gpt and rewrite things and yeah 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 all right third way that you say companies need to tweak their marketing strategy in 2024 is founder led and obviously that's my favorite point here given that this Mm -hmm. is the founder led marketing show so you say that you need at least one executive drive in your marketing founder owner c-suite people want to follow and engage with people online um the internet is finally social and it's the primary primary way how people connect learn and interact um i mean you're a prime example of this obviously being the ceo of databox and you're super active on social you're posting almost daily on linkedin sometimes multiple times a day um you're you're on podcast you have your own podcast um maybe share a little bit of your journey of arriving here i don't know how how long it took you or when you started posting on linkedin but when did that realization kick in that you were like oh shit like i as the ceo of 100 people organization should be out here on social media sharing my thoughts and ideas every single day yeah um i've always created content uh my son's 16 and i i blogged his live birth like not video then uh, but i gave i have a time stamped <laughs> blog post written and it was a long unfortunately for my wife it was a long birth um and my whole family followed along fr- friends like people i worked with so it was it was I, I i've always understood the power of publishing even before my son was born i had a blog obviously um and then for years, I'd use Twitter. It felt, you know, you know, at HubSpot, I was running a few hundred person team. So like sitting down and writing longer form stuff, even LinkedIn's length didn't feel like I could do that. And, but Twitter did. And so I stuck with Twitter for a while. It was always a way for me to like test ideas, get feedback, et cetera. But it took me literally years on Twitter to get a following. It's just, uh, uh, it, it's harder there. And mm-hmm around the time that Elon bought Twitter and there seemed to be a lot of drama around Twitter. And that same time, it seemed like there were quite a few people who were publishing more regularly on LinkedIn and having really good success with it. Uh, And so I said, screw it. I'm going to make time and do this. Um, And I didn't start out thinking, oh, I'll post every day. I just started out saying, I'm going to start posting. And like literally lighting that first post was intimidating just because like I had to sit down and think about it. I had to edit it. It's unlike Twitter where you can just like, have a thought kind of maybe works with it like for five minutes and send it out. This generally requires, you know, a half hour to an hour. And, and now I'm much faster at it than I was in the beginning, but, but, um, but like doing that first post was the hardest one. Um, I have been around for a while. I have a pretty big network, personal networks. And so I wouldn't say I had overnight success with it, but I did get feedback quickly. And that feedback is what drove me to continue to the point now where, 
you know, I can spend 20 minutes writing up something. I posted something this morning that literally took me five minutes. It talks about something that the product team's work working on. Um, and it's four sentences and it has like 30 responses on there, um, from customers, partners, mm -hmm. prospects. Uh, and so now it doesn't take me as much time to publish something. Um, but, uh, it, it, it is really valuable. It gets us feedback. Um, it gets, uh, awareness built for what we're doing or what we just did as a company. Um, it, it really truly creates a bit of a community when you combine publishing on LinkedIn as an executive with interaction with prospects and customers, because they start to follow along. Um, in fact, somebody today responded, um, I know they've been following me for years. It's the first time they've ever written to me. And they said, Hey, I'll give you the short versions, like paraphrase, but they said, Hey, we finally did that thing you've been talking about for a year. I was afraid of doing it before. Uh, I didn't think it would work. It would be, I was scared of what I was going to, what was going to happen. Um, but I finally did it. And so I know they've been following me because I know someone else that's working with them. I had exchanged a quick email with them. I got some resistance from them and I said like, all right, screw it. I'm not going to push you on this. Like I didn't even say that. I just kind of let it go. Um, and, but a year later, she only because they're following me on LinkedIn, they finally tried it. And I get those kind of stories all the time where I can observe someone following along and like it finally clicks for them. We have another partner that's like uh, following me along. And then he joined my mastermind group. I, have a, I host a mastermind group most Fridays. Uh, and he, and then, but he wrote the other day, like it took me nine months, but I finally got on board and uh, with what Pete's been talking about around building a community around my marketing. And we're now partnered tightly with Databox and, but it took me nine months and he literally wrote that. It took me nine months to come around to it, but now they're all in. Like it's a key piece of their 2024 strategy. So um, that consistent publishing creates that community and it gradually gets people to do what you're suggesting or talking about. Um, and then when they go for it, they're all in, right? They've overcome their resistance on their own. Um, and you could do that. I could do that on a sales conversation, whatever, but, but like by doing it this way, I'm getting much more, amplification of what we're doing right uh, it's one to one many to. instead of one to one yeah right i'm, I'm curious if, what would you given that the two stories that you just told that this person was following you for a year and literally never engaged and then a year later they're like we're now doing the exact thing that you told us to do and the mm -hmm. second one was like nine months later given that yep. what what do you tell founders or ceos who are debating doing that i mean we talked I talk with founders and CEOs all the time, right? Because we do this mm -hmm. sort of stuff for people. And it's often about, well, how do we know it's working? How long does it take? I want to see results fast. Okay. Right. Yeah. Like, how do you tell founders and CEO to think about this thing, given that it might take a while? Yeah, this isn't, this isn't like another marketing channel. It's not just another marketing channel. Um, it's, it's not, like something you try to do and evaluate like a month later. Um, you're either committed to continuous innovation uh, and the commercialization of that innovation or not. Like if you, as a founder, figured something out two years ago and you just want to build a big business and you don't give a shit about ever figuring out anything else out or innovating on your product or your service, then 
don't do this shit. But if you're committed to building a business for the long term that's defensible, that um, where you know you need to continue to innovate, like there is nothing better than direct connection with the either your customers, partners, or people who might use you in the future. And so if you're not prioritizing somebody's efforts towards that, then I just don't think you're going to be able to compete in the future, right? You could do it manually. Like you could do the, a lot of that stuff privately in one-on-one. And maybe if you're in some, you know, if you're doing military, military hardware, like don't go on LinkedIn and start writing about it. You got to continue to do that through private confidential channels. But most of the market, um, you should be building out in the open and, um, and, and like the tools didn't exist before to do that. Um, social, like I, I think I said in a later point, social wasn't social before social for the last 15 years has been a promotional media channel been social media. It's now returned to being a social networking platforms. Um, people mm. actually connect, communicate, follow, listen to what you're saying, do what you're suggesting. Like there's, it's now truly a always on 24 seven networking event. And, and so not utilizing it seems crazy to me as an executive. Right. I'm not saying it has to be the CEO. Like obviously my personality is built towards this. I am ambiverted in terms of, I got a little bit of balance of extroversion and introversion. Uh, but uh, I think uh, you need somebody in a position of authority at your company to be a voice um, directly to your customers and listen and, just to, and yeah. collaborate with them. And just to add on this, obviously the reason why it should be a founder, a CEO or an executive at the company is because they mm -hmm. have authority and they actually have a depth of expertise that will resonate with, with senior decision makers. And I feel like it, this has become even more important in at least on LinkedIn and this year and last year, because I remember I got started on LinkedIn in December, 2018. I posted my first LinkedIn video in January, 2019. That was shortly after uh, Microsoft had bought LinkedIn and shortly after they introduced video native video on LinkedIn. So no one's using was using it. It was completely unsaturated. I was a random guy who had just dropped out of college. And I posted my first LinkedIn video with literally zero connections and I got like 5,000 views, oh, wow. right? Okay. And the, there was no meat in the video. It was just little me like, hey, I'm in. <laughs> I dropped out of college and this is my first yeah. video. And that has changed now because it's now becoming much more saturated. There's more and more people jumping on, sharing their thoughts. There's now ChatGPT allowing people to create content with much less friction. So now to get a level of engagement and reach it's not enough to just post a random video and be like, oh, I just dropped out of college because no one's using it. You actually need to have real expertise, real insights, real thoughts that are non-obvious. And that's not going to be your junior social media hire that you just brought in and tell them, hey, write some LinkedIn content for us, right? So it's become even more important, in my opinion, that it's a real leader, expert, thought leader, creating this type of content. Yeah, no, absolutely. It needs to be somebody with both ex expertise. I'm not saying they have to be the most experienced person in the world, but it needs to have some expertise that's relevant to your buyer, right? To the market you're serving. Um, 
And I think the more experience and expertise that that person can call upon, the more, uh, the, you know, the more credibility they have, but also the more insightful you, like the quicker I can generate an insight, right? I can have three conversations with somebody and like confirm an insight and then share that. Whereas somebody that doesn't have the experience or expertise might not know what questions to ask, where to look um, in order to really generate that insight and share it share it back. So yes, I think it's important right. that somebody with that. That said, I have two people on my team. Uh, one that's probably um, five years. I, I always get this wrong, but maybe five years out of school and one that's maybe 10 years out of school. The one with 10 years out of school doesn't have a lot of relevant experience outside of Databox. So like he did way, way different things before this. Um, uh, and in the last year, they've become really good at like collaborating with people to the point where they are generating their own insights based on their own experiences and sharing what they're learning as they go. So it doesn't need to be, to do this well, you don't need to have five years of experience in that market. You just have to be committed to collaboration, committed to learning as much as you are writing. It's not about, once again, it's not about sitting in a room and having a thought and writing it out. You can do that, of course, but the real value comes from that one-on-one -on -one interaction where you're asking other people questions, you're running a survey, building a benchmark, you're doing a podcast, and you're interacting and learning from each other. Point four, and we again kind of bled into this, but social first, SEO second. Put less resources into SEO, you say, and put more resources into actually creating social first content, whether that's a podcast that you repurpose or LinkedIn posts, rather than, you know, the, the what, what I think about is, you know, companies sharing their blog posts on LinkedIn, which is, it should be flipped that you start with yeah. the LinkedIn post and then that's the insight that maybe allows you to create a longer piece of content that you can, right. That you can host yeah, the on your website. Plus for the, the comments run. you might get, right. That allows you to create that longer form content. Yeah, no, I, I'm a big believer in using social to test in the interest level of a, of a topic and, and a hypothesis or an angle. Right. So if you post up, if you have an engaged audience on LinkedIn or YouTube or Twitter or wherever, and you post something and it gets a lot of likes, comments, retweets, reshares, whatever, um, uh, views, all that, then you know, all right, that's an interesting topic to people. And so therefore it's validated and it makes sense now to go and run a survey or hire a writer to do research or um, do a two interviews and come up with, you know, a piece of content that's uh, worthy of, of a longer form article. Do and you so, think, yeah, do you, totally do you, would you, in, would you include Google ads in this category of deprioritizing SEO, meaning deprioritizing search, deprioritizing Google? Yeah, I, sh I, sh I should have chosen my words a little more carefully in that post. Um, I'd say the, the, I don't like, I wouldn't give the blanket deprioritize search or paid uh, to companies without more context of what's working for them. If it's working for them, by all means, keep doing it. Um, by my the way, advice this is, caveat, I don't want to yeah. put uh, words into your mouth. You didn't actually yeah. say deprioritize. What you said is uh, don't give up on SEO, but accept that it is going to get harder and the rich will get richer. Exactly. I think that rich will get richer is the, is the key in that if you've been doing SEO and you ha you've been around for a while, you have a high domain authority, you have people that link to your content and follow your content, like keep doing SEO, then we fall in that bucket at Databox. Like we are, we have a great domain authority. We have a great process for creating unique content. 
we will continue to do SEO. We have, we can, we capture high intent sign up for our product through SEO. And that's actually the main driver of our business. And there's still areas for, uh, for us to grow that. Um, but let's just say you're a 10 person, uh, professional services firm, uh, and your whole marketing budget is creating content for your website for SEO purposes. That's not the right thing to do. Um, most likely you haven't been doing it for a while. Most likely your domain authority is pretty low. Most likely you have a hundred thousand competitors um, out there. If you're a 10 person professional services firm, um, you're not going to be that unique. If you are unique, then doing some SEO makes sense. But if you're not unique and you're small, doing SEO is not the right first thing. The first right, the, the first thing is be where the people are and they're not coming to your website yet. And they're not going to get to you because you're not in the 10, first 10 results of Google. So instead, write content for social, right? Produce videos for social, write content for your sales team to use in their sales process. Like there's content that you can create that has other purposes besides SEO, but don't sit there under the illusion that you're going to get a lot of traffic from, from Google. And the most important thing is um, to write content for other locations. So not just social, but also other places where your customers are hanging out. So, we have partners that write for our blog because our blog will rank for the keyword term that they want to rank for, but theirs won't, their website won't. And so find those places to, to guest author, same thing with podcasts, right? Like go starting a podcast. You should have, everybody should do it. Even just for the sake of the fact that they get to talk to one other person. <laughs> um, uh, but you should also go on other people's guests as a guest podcast as a guest, right? Like, and, and take advantage of reach that already exists elsewhere. Um, so I think that's, that's really the lesson is like, find the place to put your content that will have the most impact. And it, unless you are already good at SEO, it's probably not going to be on your website. Right. One more point on, on Google. And I had this conversation yesterday with the head of marketing at a, a SaaS company doing 6 million in, in revenue. Um, and, and they're selling a high ACV solution. So 50,000 yep. to $150,000 per year is what customers pay them. Yep. And he gave this analogy and he's like, if I'm going to buy a yacht, I'm not going to go on Google and search yachts and buy, uh, you know, a yacht based on some link what or a, some Google ad that I saw. Right. What people, how people actually buy yacht is that you have a friend who has a yacht you talk to them and they recommend you something and they say, I bought this. I'm really happy with it. Right. And that's how high ticket B2B solutions are actually bought. It's through peers. It's asking people it's you, you're not going to Google something and pay $150,000 a year based on one thing that you saw on Google. You're going to see someone who you see as a thought leader or an expert sharing their expertise and recommending this thing. And this might be a third party, like a peer, someone, you know, or it might be the actual founder and CEO of that company leveraging their thought leadership on, on LinkedIn. And if you follow them and you respect them, then it becomes no brainer to use their solution. So I think that's, that's just another kind of dynamic happening there with, with Google, Google ads in, in general there. Um, point uh, number five. At uh, the end of the day, ahead. like word of mouth is the reason most people hear about a product and buy it. And it's always been that way, no matter how good our 
advertising targeting is or how good our marketing is, word of mouth is what controls whether somebody hears about you and whether they really truly consider you. They're always going to be relying on independent third parties, whether it's a friend, a colleague, a competitor, or a review website, right? To, to evaluate who they should ultimately at least um, you know, investigate buying from or um, evaluate um, and purchase from. So that's totally, totally critical. And actually your website is not the place to influence other people. Social is, right? Because you can contact, connect with your customers, connect with your prospects, connect with your partners. And when you're creating content on there and your partners and customers and prospects are engaging, their peers then see that content. And so social media is the accelerant. It's the vehicle in which you can actually control how fast word of mouth happens. And that's where we build a lot of our funnel. It's like a partner follows us for a while. They reshare us, they leave a comment. And then they sometimes even just tag people that they know that should read this piece of, piece of content that I or somebody else on the team published. And that's what generates that word of mouth because implicit in that comment, implicit in that share is an endorsement of us and our, uh, our trustworthiness and our products and services. So right. if you want to accelerate word of point mouth, point do, do social. Yeah. Point number five, measure differently. So mm -hmm. given that, you know, you talk about companies moving more to social, starting a podcast, um, how do people and companies need to change the way that they measure and attribute their marketing activities? Yeah, so most people are are used to looking at website analytics. Like most companies in the world just use Google Analytics. Um, there's another segment of companies that use um, a marketing automation tool, whether it's a HubSpot, ActiveCampaign, a Klaviyo, an Ecom, right? Like there's all these different tools out there. Um, none of those tools give you a complete picture if you do the kind of marketing we're talking about, if you're doing publishing on LinkedIn, if you're doing YouTube videos, if you're doing a podcast, if you're guesting on podcasts, if you're publishing uh, content, um, you know, on any social platform, basically. Uh, and so what most companies that do a lot of that stuff do is they literally just ask their prospects or leads where they heard about them. Uh, so it's used back in the day before the internet, you're probably too young to ever have experienced this, but you would call a business. I don't know an era before the internet. <laughs> exactly. But you would call a business and one of the first, and they say, hello, and what can I help you with? And then at some point during that conversation, they would say, how did you hear about us? And you'd say, oh, I just looked you up in the Yellow Pages or, oh, um, a friend of mine used you and was happy with your service. And so I, that's, that's how I heard about you. Or... Um, whatever. I saw your sign as I was driving on this road. Um, and so the digital version of that is I, I follow your founder on LinkedIn, or I've been listening to your podcast for six months, or I attended an event because events are also very difficult to attract, to track, especially if it's a third party event. Um, and so I attended an event where you, you spoke or where you sponsored or whatever that is. Um, and you're also going to hear Google. You're going to hear that a lot. You're going to hear ads. You're going to hear word of mouth. Like you're going to hear all these things that you wouldn't ever be able to measure in your website analytics. Um, you can measure Google and links, but that's about the extent of, of what you can measure effectively with those tools. Um, and so that is step one. Step two is continue doing the automated analytics, the, whether you use Google Analytics or HubSpot. And I recommend everybody use a marketing automation platform, not just Google Analytics. Google Analytics is good for 
measuring the impact of the of your and the quality of your um, your content and, and your um, quality of your traffic on your website, but not great for tracking down the, to to sales. Uh, so totally recommend activate. So that's number two. Number three is you got to get uh, you got to measure the resonance of your content on all these platforms. So if you're publishing on LinkedIn, if you're publishing on YouTube, if you're publishing on Twitter, you're doing a podcast. Pretty much the only thing you're really going to be able to measure is whether or not a piece of content actually resonated with people, whether that got views, whether it got comments, whether it got reactions, whether it got likes, followers, like you can measure all that, but you're not going to be able to tie that to a website visit. You're not going to be able to tie that to a sale directly. And so really when you're publishing all these platforms, the only thing you should really worry about is, is my message resonating? Um, and if it is, then I'm going to tweak and repeat that message over and over again, um, on these platforms. And that's how you measure whether or not that's effective. And so the combination of those three things should give you a complete picture, right? You start starting at the bottom, you start with what tracking, what resonates, then you track things automatically through your website analytics or your marketing automation platform and CRM. Uh, and then third, um, you ask people where they heard about you. Um, and if you do all those things, you'll get a feel for what's working and what's not so that you can kind of allocate your, either your money or time towards it, but you got to do all three of those things to make it work. And the reason obviously why you can't just look at your website analytics is because if someone's been following you for nine months on LinkedIn and, and likes your content and has been engaging with it they're not going to click on a post, click on a link underneath it, go to your website, sign up. What they're actually going to do is at some point, something's happening and triggering. They're like, oh, wait a second, there's there's Peter or there's Databox. And what they're going to do is enter Databox into Google, click on Databox and then sign up, right? So it, on it, your website yeah, exactly. analytics, it shows direct traffic, you know, yeah. Google, but it's not going to show what actually drove the decision to Google Databox yeah. and and sign up. Yeah, when you when you overlay the data of what's automatically tracked from what from the data you collect by asking people how they heard about you, what you realize because um, both of those can be measured at the contact level. Um, what you realize is that Google gets credit for everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> because the last step, as you're explaining is go to Google and type data box to get to the data box website. And so it looks like, oh, you know, Google sent us this new lead that basically bought on day two after they signed up. Um, and, and that's not reality. The reality is that they literally a year ago thought about it and said, no, that's not for me. I don't want to do that. And then over that time of them seeing you on LinkedIn or listening to your podcast or seeing you speak at the third event, then they're like, finally, like, yeah, I do need a solution like that. Or maybe they did all that and then they had a meeting internally and the boss said, hey, I'd really like a tool that helps pull all our performance data together in one spot so we can set set goals and benchmark ourselves. And they're like, oh, I know just the solution. I've been following this guy and listening to this, this about this company for a year. I didn't think it would be relevant to us, but if you're saying it is, I'm going to go check it out. I'll sign us up. Right. So right. that's how it happens. And Google gets that credit, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I literally uh, in December audited the, the Google ad account of a customer and in HubSpot, you can very neatly see this is how much we spend on our Google ads, this is how many leads we generated, this is how many customers it generated, and this is how much revenue these customers generated. And these are the yeah. top kind of 
Oh, and it looked great. The, the amount of revenue that it generated was like three or four times the money that they spent. Yep. And then you look at the actual people and literally all of them, 100% of those people, the keyword that they put in was the name of the company. Right, right. right. And I was like, yeah, this, is, this is not your Google Ads. Yeah. They were going to buy anyway. They were right. ready. Exactly. You know? Yeah, no, we had, a, we had launched an affiliate program a few years back. And then in the beginning of the year, we noticed a lot of people bidding on uh, sending traffic from Google through our affiliate program. And we did some investigation. It wasn't too hard to figure out that they were just bidding on our, on our branded terms. And I'm like, ah, you know what? Our sign-up volume's way up. Maybe this is a factor. Maybe, you know, because they're beating our competition, who's also bidding on our keywords. I so just let it happen for a while. And then the, and then they went all in. Like they realized that we were going to let them get it. We didn't tell them that we could do it. Like, but they, we, because we didn't enforce our policy. They're like, oh fuck it, I'm going to go all in because they were making a lot of money from it. And so our, our affiliate commissions are like, oh, this is fucking ridiculous. We're spending all this time building this brand awareness, and they're coming in and stealing twenty percent right. commission for for basically right. you know dollars. And so um, we changed it. We didn't change our terms. Our terms were already in, but we we enforced our terms and um, enforced yeah. them. That makes sense. So point number six, partner. You say partnering with other complementary companies is no longer optional. Optional. Why is that? I think it could be a, um, a multiplier for your, for your marketing. Um, right. So most companies, when they think of marketing, it's like, what channel can we be in? Can we be in organic search? Can we be in paid search? Can we be do retargeting with Facebook? Can we uh, do awareness ads through LinkedIn? Right. They're thinking about the channels and in each one of those scenarios, you're paying a certain amount of time or money to influence one person at a time. Um, but when you go to another company that has, like we're working with Active Campaign, I'm pretty sure they have hundreds of thousands of, of customers uh, and thousands of partners. And we say, hey, let's do something together that makes sense for you, that benefits you and that benefits us. And we'll introduce our audience of tens of thousands of companies, our customer base, 10,000 companies, an audience of hundreds of thousands to you and your value prop. And you do it to ours. And that's one activity or one campaign, whatever you want to look at it as. Um, that gets you in front of a whole lot of lot more people. Um, and if you build that, a de if you build processes and repeatable processes to partner with other organizations, um, you can really start to scale that up. And that's what you know we've done at Databox. So we have a partnerships with both professional services firms that um, we do co marketing with, who also resell our product or use our product with their clients. Uh, and so we can build audience together. We can help them generate leads and we can generate leads from, from their efforts. Um, and because we also have a tight relationship where that when they're as successful as a company and signing on clients, we make more money and vice versa. Like it, it, it really creates a tight relationship where there's really great alignment. Um, so any kind of incremental audience we can reach together, we'll both monetize in some way. Um, and we've built processes My now and products that actually automate some of that. So it's self-serve for them. So we have, in effect, we have partners out there who are using our, the tools we've spent a lot of money to build, a lot of time to build. Um, but they're using that without us even being involved to extend both of our reaches. And they're leveraging our audience as well at the same time because the way we've built those processes, 
the output of the process is content that's jointly produced that we promote to our audiences. So they're getting exposure to our audiences with relatively low effort on our part. Um, I shouldn't diminish what my team does. They work their asses off, but um, it's so, it's so systematic that, um, that, you know, it's very repeatable for us. Why 2024? Um, because that has always been true about partnering, right? If you find a win-win situation with a different company that already has existing distribution to your set of customers, that, that has always been a great strategy. Is there any dynamic happening in your view that makes it more relevant today than maybe two years ago? Yeah, I think so. I've always been a partner guy, right? I Even my first startup in 2000, it was all about it was a software that helped people partner to promote events together. And then mm. I built the channel, the original um, solutions partner channel at HubSpot and built that up for nine years. So like I've always been advocate of partners. I always looked at them as force multipliers. Um, and I'm not the only one, right? There's plenty, there's a whole ecosystem of people out there that dedicated their career to building uh, channel marketing, channel sales organizations. Um, Do they call it but near I think, bound now? There's some, this whole yeah, like yeah, yeah. Um, the company Reveal <laughs> uses the term near bound, yeah. which is like a out inbound, outbound, near bound. Like a near bound is like better, and I agree with their messaging. That we're very well aligned. I'm an, I'm an yeah. investor in that company, um, mm, so uh, to totally um, love what those guys are doing. But um, I think at the mac to answer your question at the macro level. Um, the world definitely changed quite a bit. Like we, we look back and like at the beginning of 2023 and we're like, what can the world throw at us now? <laughs> um, right after COVID and all that, but like 2023 was freaking tough. Uh, I think for most companies, especially in the SaaS world. Um, and, uh, pretty much it seemed like everybody was sitting there saying, how can we reduce our software costs? Um, and, uh, you know, not to mention, of course, reducing team sizes, which reduces software expenditures and all that stuff. So, so I think in the SaaS world, it became um, cool to be operating efficiently. And when you look at the things you can do to operate efficiently, um, from a marketing perspective, uh, partnership should be at the very top of the list. Maybe, maybe you know, content marketing is right above that. And I don't think you can do partnerships these days without doing content marketing effectively. Um, but, but partnerships to be at the very top of that list, um, because, um, you can do it cost effectively. And if you get the partnerships, right, it can have a, not just an initial, um, ROI, but a long-term one. Interesting. Um, all right, let's, let's move on to the last point here. Point number seven, stop pitching prematurely marketing should take over prospecting and my little daughter is uh, <laughs> joining the podcast here um I'm, I'm curious expand on that stop pitching prematurely marketing should take over prospecting yeah. what do you mean by that marketing should take over prospecting um i don't know about you but how many how many salespeople pitch you on a daily basis over email or on your phone or through linkedin less you, than you, you must... i'm convinced of that okay. all right Probably less than me, but it's still a number, right? There's still got to be a certain yeah, number yeah, yeah. that you're getting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's like, it's probably 30 people a day, just like in my inbox, in my in my DMs. I, I literally just leave my voicemail full at this point. And just if they're not in my in my contact list, then it's not. I basically tell them in my voicemail message, text me. And so very few, luckily, very few spammers um, text. Um, mm -hmm. So... 
so anyways, it's like, it's like almost a full-time job to screen out all the people pitching me. Um, and I'm not the only one I know. And when you look at it from the perspective of why it's happening is like technology has made it so easy to send lots of messages, to make lots of calls, to send lots of emails, even in a semi-personalized targeted way, right? We call it account-based marketing, but it really is like interrupting us with unwelcome pitches for the most part. And, and so it's just not, it's so ineffective. The percentages of people of it working are so slim and it's not so much that the technology is a problem. It's not so much that the ABM tactics are a problem. I don't even have a problem with salespeople cold calling me. What I have a problem with is them making assumptions that I have a problem that they need to solve and that I need to spend time with them right now to, to, to listen to what they want to tell me. Like, that's just not the way I buy things. No one freaking buys things that way anymore. Like the internet exists for 20, has existed for 20 years. If I have a problem or if I want to solve a solution, I am not waiting for somebody to call me to tell me about it. Um, so the right way to engage your audience is not that way, but I'm not saying be passive. I think there's a whole group of inbound marketers out there that are saying, I'm just going to write content and wait for people to reach out to me. That's not cool either. You can't grow a business that way. Um, you have to be, but you do need to pick who you want to target and you need to engage those people in conversations that they want to have. And that doesn't start with listening to my pitch. It starts with, Hey, I was doing some research and I, and I have this insight. I'd love your opinion on it. Or, hey, I'm running a podcast and you seem really interesting and have a great story to tell. I'd love to have you on the show to tell you about that so you can tell that story to my audience. Or, hey, I'm running a survey for people just like you and just like you is X, B, X, Y, and Z criteria. Would you be interested in contributing to the survey? It'll take you five minutes. Uh, in order to get access to the preliminary anonymous results. Um, or, hey, I'm running a survey and writing a report. I'd love for you to take the survey, but I really want you to actually contribute to the research report with a quote or two about this thing, because I can see that you have expertise and experience at that. Um, and so we have to approach people in a way that will work by approaching them to learn from them, not to tell them how much they suck and how much you need, they need to hire you and spend money mm -hmm. with you so that you can solve their problems. It just doesn't, it's just not going to continue. It's going to continue to get lower and lower and uh, conversion rates, response rates, and a diminishing return on that expense. Unless salespeople stop and they're more patient and, and, and treat, treat people with respect and uh, mutual respect as if the person that you're talking to, you're going to learn something from um, as much as they're going to learn something from you. And so uh, I don't think most salespeople ever switch um, to that mindset, um, mm. even though it's not a new mindset. Frankly, if you read any sales book from last century, you will see how to win friends and influence people, all, uh, <laughs> uh, all that kind of like if you read any of the, how to think grow rich by Napoleon Hill, like if you read any of that stuff, it's all about treating people with respect and giving them the benefit of the doubt and learning with them. And that's the, if you treat people mm. that way, but the way we've set up sales organizations today, it's, hey, I need you to go and make 50 dials uh, and I need you to have 10 calls, this qualification calls this week and I need you to close, I need you to close, you know, 20 deals this month. Uh, and and we're measuring the, we're measuring that, but we're not giving people space and time or processes 
to follow that can help them initiate dialogue and relationships. Um, so and that's why I'm saying, I will, hey, I this will disagree on your last point. Okay. I will disagree on your last point, uh, which will have to be a kind of closing thoughts because my battery is running out here. Okay. I feel like the best SDRs and even AEs right now, looking at companies like Gong, are building a personal brand. Oh, yeah, totally. If they're doing that. On great. LinkedIn, they yeah, have absolutely. their podcast, yeah, you know, they have a newsletter. Yeah, I agree. But there's very so, few of them. It's very few. Right. Very yeah. few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. And I don't think and the internal systems and processes point. are set up to encourage it. Um, totally. It's, uh, I'm sure they those people are getting good pats on the back. And an organization like Gong is probably encouraging it. But yeah. most organizations, that's discouraged. Um, right. And it's certainly not enabled. Right. Yeah. Peter, um, I love this. Thank you so much for uh, spending time here. And I hope that there were at least some nuggets for, for companies, companies here to rethink at least a couple of their, their things as they go into 2024 with their marketing. So thank you so much. Me too. I think the world will be a better place if we all slow down a little bit, do more research, collaborate a little bit more, give our prospects uh, the the mic once in a while. And, uh, and so I hope we've inspired a few more organizations to, to do that. And I know you've been crushing it. I've been following you, Finn. And uh, if they're looking for help with this stuff, I know that you're already very much in line and doing a lot of this stuff for some of your clients. So please keep going. Cool. So if you guys enjoy what, what, you know, Peter shared here, and most of you probably know, Peter, there's links going to be down in the description with links to his, his LinkedIn and, and Databox, obviously the company that he's the CEO of. So if you want to check that out, it will all be in the description. All right. Thank you very much.